there was some initial thought about what would be vulnerabilities that would make certain people more vulnerable than others. As we have collected more and more information, that set of calculations is changing in terms of age versus other health factors. And so what in some ways you have, and it sounds awful to say it because it's real people, what you have here is a modeling challenge of how do you model something that's in flight where none of the data is stable. And so the language of bending the curve is language that appeared now, gosh, eight to 10 weeks ago as a way of starting to say, if you looked at all of the trends for the data, you could just see mortality rates going up. If you did nothing, if you didn't sort of impose various kinds of isolation methodologies and tracing and tracking. So three big kind of public health interventions that you can enact, right? So you can test people, you can track and trace people, and you can engage in forms of separation, quarantine, and isolation. Real People is produced by Squareholes, an agency conducting and publishing customized explorative research on key consumer markets, customers, and population segments. Squareholes also provides associated consulting and support to ignite positive business and social behavior change. Visit squareholes.com for more. Radio, hello there. My name is Jason Dunstone and welcome to Real People, where we interview average and not-so-average people, academics, researchers and leading thinkers to help us better understand what real people believe and how they behave. Today we are joined by distinguished Professor Genevieve Bell, Director of the 3A Institute at ANU in Canberra, a collaboration with CSIRO's Data61 with a mission of building a new applied science around the management of artificial intelligence, data, technology and the impact on humanity. Genevieve is also Senior Fellow New Technology Group at Intel since joining Intel as a researcher to conduct ethnographic research in 1998. This is the most fascinating discussion around the world in chaos, how we're adjusting and what might come. We discuss key themes such as contact tracing and mass surveillance and how critical it is that our community embraces this to fight COVID-19. We explore how the devastating Australian bushfires and COVID-19 have shone the light on our vulnerabilities and segments of the community that were already falling through the cracks, dealing with inequality, personal dangers and complexities, and the role of the government in supporting this. Genevieve shares her perspective on how Australia has dealt with COVID-19 compared with other parts of the world and how it is near impossible to understand the situation without more data and stable models. Uh, let's not waste a moment. On with the show. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about! Wait! Okay now, from the beginning. Thank you for joining us today, Genevieve. I'm going to start off with the question I've been asking lately, uh, which seems a bit odd, but how are you feeling Oh, listen, that's always a good question. It's a good yeah. question even when we're not in some kind of quasi-lockdown. <laughs> in these odd times, it seems, yeah. <laughs> in, you know, in May 2020, a moment we will be able to date because of where we were. Uh, I'm doing okay. I mean, you know, I'm in some ways incredibly lucky. I have space in my home to work. I have semi-reliable internet. I have a machine that when I push a button and remember to put water and coffee beans in, it does actually make me coffee on the other end. And at some level, that's all the essentials, coffee, electricity, the internet, a roof and a desk. Yeah. And as a, I guess, you're more than a researcher, but as an observer of people, 
Like, how, how have you kind of taken like the last couple of months, seeing all the things changing? I, like, it's Listen, quite I different. think we've come through. We've come through an extraordinary. I would say at this point, it's six months, right? I think you know, uh, it's easy to forget, given the scale and speed of the moment we're in, that there was something hard before that. But if you think your way back to November, December, January in Australia, we went through an epic, unprecedented bushfire season with consequences of places burning that had never burnt before, mm. with rings of smoke across our capital cities, with those extraordinary pictures from Eden and the Victorian coast of people being evacuated on beaches by the Navy. And I sort of think about, you know, what did that summer, what mark did that summer leave on Australians and actually on the globe, because my colleagues and friends globally saw those pictures. And I think they were kind of shocking right they made it really clear that uh if there were a possibility that the future was already here it was just unevenly distributed and mm. one of our futures was climate change we were the, the the future that no one else wanted right and i'd been thinking about that a lot coming into january and february and about the notion of how fragile the 21st century seemed and how much the kind of promise of the 21st century was resting on all these 20th century technologies, electricity, water, roads, communications, the internet, civil and civic society. <laughs> and I think, you know, that summer here made it so clear to us that those systems weren't as stable or as robust as we might have hoped. Mm. And the one thing that seemed to be a hopeful sign that came through all of that was the civic and civil society piece, right? It was the fire services. It was all those communities that banded together to save properties that weren't their own while their own properties burnt, that worried about the wildlife and the ecosystem damage, that gave money and time and energy and care. And that seemed like an extraordinary gift at the time. And now move forward, right, a few more months on top of that, and we've found ourselves in a situation where, yet again, we've seen the future. Uh, I think, you know, for Australians, that future was being enacted in places that many of us have visited, in places that many of us have family from or family who still live there. And it felt a very real possibility that we would be Lombardy or Birmingham or Paris or New York City or, 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 or right, mm. or Singapore, Taipei, you know, places that we have as part of our kind of our intimate geography. I think there has been an extraordinary moment here in Australia. It's a long moment now. I mean, it's, you know, six to eight weeks of a moment of being willing at a collective scale to change our behaviour for a notion of a larger good. Yeah. And for me, I think the, the first signs of that were over the summer and it's interesting and terrifying to see it played out again and what that means. So for me, at one level, it's like, yeah, we're in a pandemic, but that pandemic has a set of emotional and affectual roots from the summer, and I think, you know, builds on top of that. Chaos brings change. Well, and it also allows us to see ourselves really clearly because it gets rid of all the noise in the system. And I think, you know, there's ways in which who we are is more visible to ourselves and each other than it has been in a little while. So it doesn't surprise me when you see some of the statistics that have come out recently that Australians have a renewed trust in uh, sort of governmental agencies and government organisations and that we are willing to put aside a little bit of our querulousness in order to say what would we want to do collectively. And I think, you know, 
it's hard for that to be sustained and you're already seeing that fracture around the edges now but it's been a um yeah a remarkable moment and i think hard right because at this particular point in time so early may 2020 we are in some ways now deeply out of step with the rest of the world okay. um and i think that's a weird feeling too right everywhere else looks a little bit different from us okay i'm gonna pause for a bit because i've got a question i've been asking through all of these interviews and i'll go through it quickly and we'll get back to the current times but what were you like as a child what were you like as an eight-year-old what was I like as an eight-year-old? Oh, I'm sure I was a monumental pain. <laughs> uh, I hadn't read, hadn't met a book I couldn't read. I believed that reading was a thing that should happen all the time, day and night. I could always be found with a book, usually a pile of books. I had a fear that I might run out of books. Uh, I had been raised by my mother to believe you should get to ask questions about everything. So I asked a lot of questions about a lot of things to a lot of people. I believe even as an eight-year-old that my voice counted. So I spent a lot of time on detention as an eight-year-old. Uh, the principal of Turner Primary School was very kind to me the first time I turned up in his office because I had questioned my social science teacher's assertion that Captain Cook discovered Australia. <laughs> that one kept me on detention for quite some time. Um, so I don't know. I think I was probably difficult's the wrong word. Um, I used to wonder because people would say I was precocious, what you grew up to be if you've been precocious. But I tend to think of myself as having just been, I wasn't very still as a kid. Like I was, my mind was constantly busy. I was constantly asking questions of the world and I wasn't ever particularly pleased with the answers I got. And I suspect I was a bit of an introvert because I still am. And I was certainly, um, I wasn't a loner, I had friends, but I remember feeling deeply out of step with my peer group. Hmm. But but it sounds like trying to make sense of it all, even as a child. Oh, perennially. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I like to imagine that you can find the patterns in things. I mean, I do remember in the same class that I got kicked out of for my, you know, inability to recognise Cook's brilliance, um, or at least just not... I refuse to admit that he was the first person to discover Australia because as I diligently said to my teacher, well, the Dutch had been here and then there'd been the Chinese before that and while Aborigines had been here for a very, very, very long time. <laughs> so you can imagine that didn't go down too well. Um, I do remember at the same time discovering uh, the beautifulness that is mathematics. So I remember the moment, I can still feel what it felt like, right? The moment of working out the times tables made a grid and that grid had a pattern to it. And once you knew the pattern, you didn't need to actually memorize things. You could just make sense of it. And that was a kind of a moment of a thing going from being a blur to being sharply in focus. And I suspect I really liked that too. So it seems obvious in that explanation of you as a child of how your child informed your adult. <laughs> Is that fair? Well, for some of us, there's a straight line through. Is that right? There we go. And and your sound like your your mother. I think you said like encouraged you to be like that. So encourage you to. So yeah, my mother is an anthropologist by training and was one of the people who was a beneficiary of Whitlam's liberalising of the university system. So she went to university when she already had two small children. And my dad's an engineer by training. So I grew up with two very different traditions of how to think about things. But mum was very very clear about the notion that you should always be kind of asking questions of things and that, you know, if you could frame the question, that was a good thing. And that the notion that everything was due a question was always true. And she also had a very clear sense about uh, 
social justice and kind of moral imperatives. So she was very clear with my brother and I at that same age that we had a moral obligation to make the world a better place, not for ourselves, but for others. And that should inform all of our decision making. And so they were very clear lessons to me as a kid. So for someone with an innate curiosity in your DNA, what is something over the last week or so that you've gone, that is weird. I would have never expected that. Um, oh, I know. Um, it's not that I wouldn't have expected it. I just didn't expect it quite at the scale. Um, so it has been fascinating to watch people use cars to maintain social distance but doing social things. So the drive-ins may have come back uh, in the US. I've seen people do drive-in churches now, so taking their cars to a parking lot outside a church and the sermon going on. I've seen driving uh, concerts. Hey. In Germany yesterday there was a drive-in rave which I think, you know, wins complete points as far as I'm concerned for just style. Uh, there have been some interesting dates and dating patterns going on around the east coast of the US and I assume in bits of other places too of people bringing two cars together so that they can sit next to each other but socially distant and eat food together. Um, so there's something for me sort of delightful about our insistence of being with each other yet trying to work out how to manage it in a socially distant way and somehow having cars in that equation for me is just delightful. Mm. And with the cars, it's all—it's obviously that connection, but it's also there's a degree of jest in it as well. Like, I, I think uh-huh. I, I, it's like humans around the world can – this COVID has is, is really connected the world and I guess there's a degree of humour at we're a rave in cars. So it, it, I think most people will say, yes, it's, it's the music and it's the rave, but it's, it's, it's kind of funny. Yeah, there's a gesture. There's a gesture to it too that I kind of appreciate, right? There's not a lot that has been – cheering in that sense and so you know for me the ones that didn't make sense to me i just went yeah okay (laughs) (laughs) that feels like a kind of resurgence of a particular kind of car culture and there's different ways when the (laughs) excuse me uh when first when there was a bushfires then it turned into covid uh 19 across the world of ways we could have gone as people so obviously got the excuse me (coughs) So the, <clears throat> there were the economic oh, <coughs> my throat. Um, the economic challenges and then the, there were really I guess the uh, mental health challenges and it's all, we're going to find things that are going to come and go as, as we go through but I guess one of my observations is that people have been by and large quite adaptable so we could have um, like, there's, there's all, maybe maybe it's too early to say but the people by and large have adapted to it what, what's your what's your opt- observation around that sort of how adaptable we've been in amongst unprecedented well, listen, chaos. I think I think for people with a certain amount of privilege, it's easier to adapt. Oh, okay. You know, it's easier to adapt if you have space in your home for work, if you have a capacity to share parenting and schooling of your kids, if you've got kids. It's easier to adapt if you have a bit of financial security. I think, you know, when... I also think about how uneven the experience of this has been. If you are someone who is working paycheck to paycheck, if you're someone whose job has suddenly evaporated, or if you're someone who has to keep doing your job even if it's not really safe and it's not considered to be a job that people worry about that way. So I look at it and go, listen, I think some people can adapt because there's a certain luxury is the wrong word. There's a privilege that many of us carry right that makes it easier to bounce with through some of this but i think for entire 
sectors of the population and the economy, entire countries, the flexibility just isn't going to be there in the same ways. And how we work out managing through that is really tricky. I mean, there's a first set of papers being published uh, in sort of the academic area demonstrating that over the last eight weeks, the number of women as authors of academic papers has gone to the lowest number it's been ever. So basically women are not having extra time in this moment. They're actually got less time. Uh, we know it's going to have a differential impact on kids. We know there's an increase in domestic violence, mental illness. So I look at it and I go, one of the narratives we talk about is that we've been resilient as societies. And I think that's true. I mean, we've been kind of at a societal level, it's been amazing. But I think at an individual household and human level, it's probably much more uneven. And I think for many Australians and other people around the world, this must be a moment of profound and absolute trauma, mm -hmm. both at a health level, but also at an economic, where do I go next level? And that's, that's really fascinating because I think in Australia and other parts of the world, we're not always good at looking after vulnerable people. It, it, they they kind of get lost. So the narrative in the media, um, most a, a lot of brands are going out there saying we're in it together. The media saying we're in it together. So there's a narrative of going, yeah, we're all adapting and and it's all okay and it's not perfect. But the reality is those sort of those those vulnerable different groups out there yeah. kind of become lost because maybe the issue becomes bigger than individuals that means that the individuals who are vulnerable maybe get lost is that is that fair listen i think it's a lot of different things right we've had a series of assumptions about what it meant for our kids to be online that assumed you had a computer at home you had internet connectivity you had someone who could troubleshoot the system that's not true for every household and we know from the data that pushing to online course delivery for uh primary and secondary school kids has a hugely differential impact by income. If you are middle class and up, it, it's okay. If you aren't, it really isn't. And that magnifies a, an sort of a difference that was already there. You know, Australia has a surprisingly high percentage of immigrant and migrant workers here, many of whom are in sectors that have been incredibly impacted by the economic downturn and who don't have the luxury to go home because there aren't planes and they can't necessarily go home because those countries are also closed. So there's a population that we don't always see but are part and parcel of how things get done in this country uh, who I'm sure feel particularly vulnerable. I'm sure that is the case for our international student population. I imagine it's true for certain communities inside big cities who feel especially marginalized i think you know whilst we can say we have been pretty good about things there have been a lot of anti-asian sentiment over the last eight weeks that we shouldn't be proud of our prime minister has asked for it to stop but we know it persists mm -hmm. and i think about you know regional remote and indigenous communities and we know they're going to be doing it hard too right you know either because they're choosing to aggressively isolate for health reasons or because they're out out far enough away from certain kinds of help and assistance that it must feel really lonely. And then I think about, you know, what it's like to be in places where you're not seeing people as much. So old age homes, prisons, <laughs> hospitals. And, you know, I look at all of that and I think, yeah, the narrative is we've been lucky and we've bent the curve. The reality is we've forestalled our future a little bit and there are a whole lot of people who are still in complicated, sometimes dangerous, frequently really bad circumstances. And how we want to think about all of that, for me, feels as critical as it ever does. But the kind of 
the ways we're talking about it feel a bit different. Mm. Some of the, a lot of the research we've done over the years when you're talking to different vulnerable groups and we'll have clients saying, well, they need to have more support. And obviously when we speak to vulnerable people, the vulnerable people will say, well, no, we're okay because it's, it's been hard forever. So we've just... We just deal with it. And I've had a few conversations recently with people and they're, they're vulnerable. They say, well, at least now we're sharing more of it. At least everybody's having a little bit more financial pain because we've had this forever. And mm-hmm. it's a hard one because like, vulnerable people often, whether it's carers or people with a disability or people on, on lower incomes, they often don't have a voice. Maybe they just accept it or, or I guess that's where the role of different advocacy groups is so critical in these times of, yes, we're in it together, but some are sort of – some are suffering more than others is is that is that fair they're just that i guess the role of those advocacy groups how how do you have it so the vulnerable who maybe have been quiet and are likely to remain quiet how do we ensure that their voice is heard listen i think you have to do that the same way you have to do many forms of change management and situational management which is that you have to ensure you have a diversity of people in the room to start off with right so if all you have in the room are one particular category of people or one particular set of lived experiences, you forget whole categories of activity. So for me, I mean, it's the same way we've had conversations about how do you drive better decision-making absent being mm-hmm. in a crisis is about having a broader set of voices in the room and it shouldn't be a matter of demanding that someone have to advocate for themselves, right? I mean, I think there's sort of a – there's an – double burden we ask people to sort of shoulder there right which is that you've been disenfranchised but now we also expect you to educate us about your disenfranchisement and you know advocate for yourself in a system that has actively disenfranchised you in the first place and is now going to make you the sentinel of disenfranchisement then that's a kind of a, a set of expectations and work that feels incredibly unfair and burdensome so part of it i think is also on decision makers and organizations to be thinking crisply and clearly in any moment in time, not just in a crisis, about what are they doing and why and how do they make sure that they have a really clear articulation that isn't just about, well, I think this. Because, you know, we used to joke about it in the US, right? It was really easy to have the Cupertino or the Santa Clara or the Redmond design methodology. So basically the corporate headquarters of Intel, Microsoft and, you know, Apple was that, you know, you could just look around you and say, well, everyone around here thinks that this is a good idea. And you're like, yeah, okay, not everyone lives there. So how we do a better job of working out for those of us who are decision makers or in positions of assisting decision makers, how do we do a better job of asking ourselves, are we representative of the broader community? And if we aren't, what would that look like? And how then do we find a way to, bring the maximum number of voices into the room and create space for them to be heard. And it can't be in the context of, and now you need to represent your, you know, disenfranchised community. It has to be because we are collectively doing something and we want to honour and hear all of those mm-hmm. and make room for them and understand that they won't always sound the same way the concerns that have been voiced up until then will sound. So part of it's not just about how do you have a diversity of rooms, but how do you create a space for meaningful inclusion, safety, and belonging. And that's long work. That's not just a moment, right? That's an ongoing thing. And then it means checking our language and being really clear, right? But for me, it's always about that kind of, you know, diversity, inclusion, belonging feel like a kind of a spectrum of activities. Yeah. And the Australian bushfires and now COVID-19 
has certainly highlighted some gaps for mm-hmm. those vulnerable audiences. So we're talking like, well, not even audiences, but climate change has got more of a focus. Certainly people in mm-hmm. regional communities got more of a focus. Domestic violence has got more of a focus. Mental health. So so it feels like they're, they're issues that have existed for for, for for a long time, but now they're, they're, they're growing in, I guess, visibility well, because it's... And even the gendered nature of the division of labour in a home, right? So, you know, who's still shouldering the bulk of work and how does that get played out? And, you know, notions about all of the kind of forms of tacit care that goes on about organising things, you know, that's often invisible labour. So you're right, and the bushfires and COVID-19 didn't make any of these come, things come into existence. They just made them visible again. Yeah. Uh, Australia looks to be... I guess flattening the curve and, and with fewer new cases coming and, and part of that is likely to come from Australia's geographic isolation. But have you got any commentary on how well Australia has dealt with COVID compared to other places? So I'm not a public health expert and I'm not, not an epidemiologist. Um, you know, I suspect like many of your listeners, I'm an informed reader of the news and of the data But I think there are questions we might want to ask about all of that data globally. So at the moment, we are, well, we don't actually know, right? We don't know how far we are into this pandemic. Uh, You know, as of this morning, there were already new studies trying to work out when the first instances of the virus turned up in various places, right? And we're pushing it back into November and December. So at the moment, we don't actually know precisely when this started. So problem statement number one, (laughs) we don't know when it really began. We don't yet have a good way of cataloging all the data that's being produced. You will notice that in the last couple of weeks, various places, the NHS in Britain, the CDC in the US, changed daily rates of deaths and added thousands of people to particular days because they're trying to work out how you catalog who has actually died and of what over a period of time when they didn't know that's what they were tracking. So we don't quite know where it started or when it started. We don't actually know how many people have died. We don't have a good indicator because of the unavailability and just what it would take to industrial scale testing up to test enough people to work out how many people had been infected. So why do those things matter? Well, when you talk about a disease or a pandemic, you usually want to know What's the infection rate? What's the incident rate? What's the mortality rate? And to know those things, there's some stuff you need to know, (laughs) like how many people were infected versus how many people died. It's a classic maths problem, right? At the moment, we don't actually have good data on either side of that fraction. We don't have enough information on how the virus actually spreads. We know where people are infectious. We know there is shedding. But again, because we're missing some of that critical data, we can't make good determinations. So if you are a public health expert sitting anywhere on the planet, you are making a series of decisions based on what we learned from previous epidemics, about what you think you know about this one, and about what we can model about what will happen next. And the thing about models is that the maths that sits behind this is pretty well known. But again, because the data is messy, we don't have a good capacity to be able to accurately predict it. So at any given moment in time in the last 10 weeks, maybe 12 weeks, there have been different models projecting out infection rates, mortality rates, peaks and troughs. And 
at any given moment in time, there are three or four models, and those models have significant differences in them. Mm. Because the way models work, right? It's <laughs> you are taking data and attempting to extract out on it. And if your data is noisy, the model will be noisy. And then based on what assumptions you're making, because again, this is a disease and it's real humans, not numbers, different humans will respond differently, different populations will respond differently. There was some initial thought about what would be vulnerabilities that would make certain people more vulnerable than others. As we have collected more and more information, that set of calculations is changing in terms of age versus other health factors. And so what in some ways you have, and it sounds awful to say it because it's real people, what you have here is a modeling challenge of how do you model something that's in flight where none of the data is stable. Mm. And so the language of bending the curve is language that appeared now, gosh, eight to 10 weeks ago as a way of starting to say, if you looked at all of the trends for the data, you could just see mortality rates going up. If you did nothing, if you didn't sort of impose various kinds of isolation methodologies and tracing and tracking so three big kind of public health interventions that you can enact right so you can test people you can track and trace people and you can engage in forms of separation quarantine and isolation those are your kind of your big tools right if you don't have an obvious treatment which we don't at this point and so flattening the curve was a shorthand a complicated shorthand <laughs> truthfully about how you might manage the pandemic not stop the disease because those are two different things right this was about managing the outbreak of the disease in a population not actually managing the disease because at this moment in time we don't have a vaccine we don't have an agreed to set of protocols for treatment beyond various kinds of health interventions so ventilation excessive oxygen various kinds of treatments you can perform I and mean, those are a moving target too right so what's interesting to think about here is what are the public health tools that you have and how do we use them and has Australia done well with them? So if you sort of think of it as one of those big three things, right? Testing, tracing and tracking and separation or quarantine and isolation. And we've done multiple pieces of that puzzle in very different ways than many other countries. So much like our partners across the Tasman, we went to a border closure pretty quickly, very, very degrees of it. So we went first to stop certain kinds of travelers then to say anyone who came here had to be quarantined and not self-quarantined but quarantined by the state and what they were doing there was attempting to say how do we create our national border as a barrier so that's one form of separation there are others we've asked for the 1.5 meters that's based on best guesses about how far the droplets of virus can be aerosol basically how far can it spread casually uh, we worked on creating more and more distance by stopping large gatherings of people where transmission seemed inevitable. And, you know, we've lots of different guesses about how big does a group be before transmission is inevitable. I guess, again, public health officials are making their best, best guesses based on what they know in decades worth of thinking here, right? So they're not guesses, they're informed, educated assumptions about what will work. So separate people, create distance, shut borders. Those are all kind of protocols, right? Then there's the testing piece, which says test as many people as you can. Uh, multiple different kinds of testing. At the moment, there isn't a good agreed to well benchmarked antibody test. So we don't have really good data for knowing if people have been infected or not. A couple of studies that have been done in LA, New York, and oh, Germany, I think. Uh, the error rate on those tests is quite high. 
So, you know, plus or minus 10% is not a great error rate when you're talking about a number that's 10%. Mm. So <laughs> like, oh, maybe, maybe not. So we don't have a good antibodies test yet. So at the moment, what you're testing for is presence of the virus. And one of the challenges if you are a public health official is that most people don't feel sick enough to present to be tested. And by the time they're being tested, they've been infectious for a little while. So you've got a different problem, which is why you need to be able to track and trace which is a methodology, again, a long-standing one in public health spheres of being able to say, okay, you're sick, who have you been in touch with? Because we need to find all of them too and let them know they might be sick and stop them doing anything that could spread the disease further. And that's an old methodology, right? It's 100 years mm-hmm. old. Um, and that's certainly part and parcel of what has been used as the portfolio here in Australia. So close the borders, impose quarantine, social distance, send people home test as many as we can. And we actually have a pretty good testing regime in Australia for the percentage of the population that's being tested. We're not testing everyone, we're testing a lot of people. And then working out how to ensure that you can do contact tracing and tracking. And there's, you know, a lot of public health officials being hired to do that. And that's partly where the app that the government has launched sits too. So that portfolio of things, if you did them effectively and for a prolonged period of time, you could change the nature of the outbreak locally. So when people talk about bending the curve, that incredibly long, not very lucid description is what they're talking about. <laughs> yeah. So in many ways, I'd say getting the signs of no more cases is a is a positive sign, but it's not it's not the whole story. It's far more complex than that. And the, you've written recently about contact tracing and the importance of it and obviously now we've got the COVID safe app in australia and there's other apps in other parts of the world i think there's about 4.5 million people in australia have downloaded the app which what does that make it about 20 percent of our population or so um how 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 well do you think we've adopted as a country is that obviously the the app relies on as many people as possible as the is what the government's saying is is there sort well, of so the app is, you have to think about the app as being part of this broader system, right? So the app is part of this tripartite, this three thing, three things you need to do. You need to test, you need to track and trace, and you need to have an agreed to protocol for separation, right? All the app does is help public health officials work out who you've been in contact with. So the app is only useful as a retrospective, right? The app can't tell you that you're with someone who's infected. All the app will do is, should you become infected, let public health officials find other people you have been near. Or should you have been near someone who is infected, you can be notified in such a way as to be able to quarantine yourself. So the app is part and parcel of this much broader set of things we need to keep doing. You can't just have the app in isolation. Uh, I think it's a remarkable sign that 4.4, 4.5 million Australians have downloaded an app. I think in a week that makes it one of the fastest growing apps in Australian history, which is mm. kind of extraordinary. I think it might be faster than Pokemon Go, but I'm not sure about that. <laughs> but that um, didn't last for very long. That kind of had it a didn't, spike it and didn't, it well, it didn't. It didn't need to, right? So here's okay. the other thing about this app, right? This is not an app that is is designed to last beyond the pandemic. It's also not an app that is recording your gps location it is merely recording so it doesn't actually need to know where you have been it needs to know who you have been near and it doesn't need to know their names it just needs to know that there was someone near you so it's not about absolute location or absolute contact it's about proximate location and basically who you could have infected or been infected by and so one of the interesting design choices that was made in this app and most of the other good ones globally was that the data doesn't last more than 28 days so the data is not being kept. 
Okay. The data is no longer relevant after that period of time because who you've been around then does not help a public health official. Mm. <laughs> you may want to know where your kids have been, but this app will not tell you that. <laughs> it's only good for public health officials, and after 28 days, it's not useful data because you're not infectious and you couldn't have been infected. It's also designed not to collect anything other than effectively a string of numbers. So it uses Bluetooth. So if you think about most phones, so you said, you know, it's about 16, 17 million phones in Australia. Uh, most of them are of a generation where they have Bluetooth. Um, it is Bluetooth, for those of you who remember it on your phone, it's got that weird little icon. The icon is actually a Norse ruin. If you want to, want to get technical, it is the Norse ruin for the king of Sweden back in the oh, 8th or 10th century, I forget exactly, which are united, warring Norse tribes in a single piece, hence the, the icon, which I've always kind of loved. So the thing about Bluetooth is it's just a radio, right? And all it does is transmit information, and particularly what it's good at is connecting lightweight things to each other. So you'd use Bluetooth to connect your headset or some other kind of uh, headsets usually your Bluetooth will sometimes connect your phone to your car so you can use your car's speaker system, not your phone. It's a relatively lightweight standard. It's a very old standard. We've had it for oh, 20 plus years. And all it is doing is just pinging the universe. I have a friend of mine who says you think about Bluetooth working like the game Marco Polo we used to play as kids. You call Marco, a different Bluetooth object says Polo, and they go, oh, hey, and they connect. <laughs> That's pretty much all. So, so the way in which it's built is it's not setting off privacy alarm bells. No, in fact, what's interesting about the so there's been a couple of different um, couple of different pieces written in this space. So there's a, a bunch of different contact tracing apps around the globe. Apple and Google have released a protocol that they're working on. The best apps and the Apple Google protocol. What both of them do is that they work on using anonymized keys produced by your Bluetooth stack. So your Bluetooth radio in your phone is basically running around going, hi, 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 and anything that is listening is like, oh, hi, 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 and then you exchange pins. And that's how you connect your Bluetooth to the phone, mm. Bluetooth to the car, et cetera, right? What these tracing apps do is basically have your Bluetooth radio going, hi, 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 but basically it's going, hi, indeterminate string of, well, interminable string of numbers, 15 minutes later, hi, interminable string of numbers. And in the meantime, your Bluetooth radio is listening for other radios saying the same thing back to them. And then it's just capturing the little suite of code, basically strings of code. And should you be infected and a public health official asks you if you have the app and should you say yes to that request, you could then turn over the string of keys that your phone has heard. So what it is effectively doing is letting a public health official in a quicker and hopefully more expedient manner, work out who you've been around. Mm. If, say, Jason, and we hope this is never true, if you were infected with COVID-19 and you'd had a positive test, a public health official would call you in South Australia or in whatever other state you were in, and they'd say to you, Jason, we need to have a conversation. You've tested positive for COVID-19, and we need to work out where you've been, specifically and particularly in the last 48 hours, but actually over the last two weeks. Because we know you were particularly infectious over the last 48 hours and then over the last two weeks you might have been infectious. So we really need to sit down with you and work out where you've been and who you've been with. And you then have to go through that process of working out, well, where the hell was I today and yesterday? And who did I see for more than 15 minutes? Like what are all the contexts where I might have been? Easier right now because there aren't many of them. <laughs> yeah. But six weeks ago if I'd said to you, hey, Jace, 
Where were you yesterday and the day before? Well, who was and in the, the queue? Uh, who was in the queue at a shop or whatever it might have been? So. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, do you always remember everywhere you went? I mean, mm-hmm. some of it's easy because we use credit cards to pay for something so you can use your credit card receipts you know there's gps in our phone that tells us some things sometimes you'd call someone and go hey did i see you (laughs) like there's a diary in your calendar what what i'm interested in a lot of this jen is uh genevieve sorry um is is how different countries have dealt with it so singapore Mm -hmm. korea that have been impacted by similar kind of pandemics sort of like sars and the likes my understanding is they they've had they they have contact tracing already oh yeah well so do we yeah. And so Australia's got a long history of using contact tracing. Yeah, okay. um, so not not necessarily with an app, but we've got... But digital contact so, tracing is sort of something that maybe kind of culturally we've so, been a little bit nervous about, but... Um, so we have had contact tracing in Australia, well, you know, big for the AIDS epidemic, you know, Norman Swan talks about that. We used it in the most recent measles outbreaks. So, in fact, the notion of having a public health official ask you where you've been and what you're doing, whilst many Australians wouldn't have encountered it, it's not unknown in Australia. The idea of using a digital means to prompt people to help a public health official, that's not been done so much here. It has been done in other places, but it's been done very differently, right? Not everyone used an app. Taiwan, which up until now has probably had the best public health outcomes, used a mechanism whereby the government took basically control of a whole series of data sets, merged the data sets and created new profiles for people that didn't exist before. But they did it with a sunset clause, so it lasted a month and then it stopped. Mm. I think the piece to remember here, the public health piece isn't new. Public health has been around in Australia. Well, actually, you know, since the bubonic plague outbreaks in Sydney at the turn of the last century. <laughs> so we have long histories of doing public health stuff in Australia. Um What's probably more relevant in this space is that Australia has also been a place where there has been a heady and complicated debate about privacy and trust for decades. Yeah, okay. This is a country where we have had a very complicated relationship to censorship and surveillance. So let's think about, you know, all the books that couldn't come to Australia and all the movies that had pieces expunged. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, Australia's censorship regime was famous. Uh, you know, we have had fierce debates in this country, particularly in the last 10 years, about data, data privacy, about both government and commercial services and how we feel about them. And we've also had those conversations at a global scale where Australians have been impacted. So whether that's Facebook and Cambridge Analytica, whether that's conversations about what does Google know about me or why does Apple want that information, the landscape of talking about data and our personal data is not a new one. Yeah. And the notion of a single idea about privacy is something we've never been able to agree to. Yeah. Uh, you know, and so thinking about this app as though it didn't exist in that landscape is probably quite naive. And so the reality is here is an app that is being proposed to us as citizens, not consumers. This is as a citizens as part of a public health campaign that includes this three-pronged approach, right? The government has continued to industrialise its testing regimes. We have had very clear uh, notions, state by state, (laughs) Mm. about quarantining, isolation and separation practices and at a national level in terms of our borders. And so the app is part of that broader portfolio of things. And again, it's designed to help public health officials and the legislation that's pending in front of parliament makes that very clear and makes it a crime 
as it already was under certain legislative parameters for anyone to access that data who aren't public health officials. And oh, by the way, the data isn't being stored after 28 days. And oh, by the way, by the way, what the data is, is not your name and location in an absolute sense, but it is who you've been around. And so one of the things that's interesting about this app is that in some ways, the privacy it challenges isn't necessarily yours, but yours and other people's. And thinking about you inadvertently disclosing what someone else was doing is an interesting way of thinking about privacy, right? It's not necessarily about where Jason was in an absolute sense, but it was who Jason was around. Mm. And who you were around, they may not have been thinking at the time, oh, hey, it's Jason. 14 days from now, he's going to violate my privacy. <laughs> they probably weren't thinking mm. that. They were thinking, oh, we should have a cup of coffee. That will be nice. But moving forward, yeah. is this sort of about, say, government and regulators and Australia has a – has um a history and, I guess, rules in place to make sure we use that privacy, the, the, the data privacy correctly. So that, that's sort of there. So government versus private. So obviously Cambridge Analytica with Facebook. I think my, my sense is most people went, Facebook's great. I know they've breached my privacy, but I'm not really that alarmed by it. And I think sort of, I think mm. on a commercial, I, th- I think it's kind of knowing, I guess that the trusting data is generally kind of, it, it I guess generally people kind of trust that the data's been used okay or if the if the convenience outweighs the the trust then I'm I'm okay with it or if there's safety benefits to the data being shared then I'm okay with it but I I guess it's sort of knowing um where are we going moving forward and does it need to be um does it need to be government regulated I guess is that is that I guess is that the is that where we're heading? We're sort of starting to have it so we're releasing health data more more openly. We're using obviously the the, the contact tracing. Where are we kind of heading, and what's is, is it really about having government and regulation to make sure that the community feels confident that we're going in the right direction? I think government's always got a role in yeah. regulating what data is collected, who has access to it, and under what circumstances. And public health data has always sat in a very particular kind of space in the broader ecosystem, and it is aggressively regulated, as are other things. I think the broader challenge has to do with the fact that there are a wider collection of devices that can now gather data, and the range of data that can be gathered about us is very different than it used to be. So if you think back to, you know, Sir Zelman Cohen and his Boyer lectures in 68 when he was talking about privacy and data, he imagined that data was just going to be kind of the demographic stuff that was on a census and maybe some of your tax data that would sit in some manila folder. (laughs) One day that would be computerized. But the reality is that we now have other kinds of data that's being collected about us, whether it's from our electrical meters or our navigation devices in our cars or our smart speakers or stuff we're not really thinking about, like the tap-on, tap-off, public transportation payment system, which actually reveals a tremendous amount about you. And we may not have thought about that as being personal and private data before. And so for me, I think where the conversation is, it's not about does government have a role in that. For me, government absolutely has a role in it. It's about how do we think more crisply and deliberately about what are the data sets and what are the places where there is intimate data being collected about us and personal data that we would never have historically imagined. Mm. Like, you know, what your electrical meter says about you when it is recording data in real time, not 
amortized over a month or three months, but, you know, real time where you can, with the right technology, be able to actually work out what appliances you have connected to that because they have distinctive digital footprints or electrical signals uh, feels like a very different kind of privacy than do you know my age. Yeah, and and I wonder if it's, is it data literacy? Is it privacy literacy? Because I, I think there can be an apathy about it of going, either we assume that it's all okay, and sometimes on a private sector side, we've, we've shown, it's, it's been shown that sometimes it's not okay in, in different, um, different say like Facebook, et cetera, was sort of exposed last year as maybe doing some things that weren't quite right. But is it about literacy around my data and also privacy literacy? So if I go to um, a website about uh, COVID safe, assumption is as a general citizen that I can look up and see how the data is being used and what the data is. So it's, it's that's that. actually interesting. If you go to the COVID safe website, they actually have done a very good job mm. of laying out the parameters by which the data is being collected and what kind of data it is. I mean, they've actually been quite aware of that because one of the things about privacy and data literacy, right, is that's very unevenly distributed across the community. And as it was long before digital technologies came along, right, there was an enormous variation in what people thought was private and how they felt about it, right, from people who guarded their privacy incredibly jealously to people who really didn't. And we've always had that diversity in our communities, right, for mm. lots of different reasons that have to do with personal histories and politics and age and gender and family history and, you know, the biggest privacy zealots and the most privacy sort of expansive people tend to be the ones that would surprise you the most because it's not what you'd sort of ordinary it's not what you'd anticipate if you thought you understood that sort of the demographics of that and i think you know being really clear that there's not one way of thinking about these things means that we need to work out how to have conversations about it and i think it's easy to just have the sort of knee-jerk sound bites about that stuff and instead really sort of drilling down and getting to be clear about that for me means being able to think about the difference for ourselves as citizens versus consumers. So, you know, what duty of care our governments have over us and for us and about us is very different than the ones that we have with commercial enterprises. And for me, I want to disentangle those things as well as being really clear about the fact that those relationships have changed over time and we probably need to occasionally pause and go, huh, is that what we really want? Maybe not. Mm. And so government has that role in pro protecting the rights of, of, of citizens, so protecting the rights of the data and privacy literate mm -hmm. and illiterate or, or, or vulnerable, for example, the people that don't know, I don't know, I don't know enough about this. So is that, is that it really is about that regulation and control to make sure that the data is being used correctly? Listen, I think the role of government is always to ensure the safety of its population. I think the challenge around data has been that governments also like to collect it. So thinking about not only how does government have oversight and a point of view about it, but I think they need to be thinking about how that point of view extends to themselves, right? And that's always a tricky piece. Mm. Who's start, watching the watchers? That's right. And you start looking at jobs moving forward. I, I guess it's a, one of those key roles where we increasingly have data that we're sharing about mm. what we're doing and, and part of our life. So it, it's likely a, an increasing role that will be required of people being able to protect that and, and be aware of how it all, all works. Is that fair? Yep. Yeah. Yep. I think so. One of the many new jobs in the future. And then I'm going to pause and say we have five minutes. Yeah. So on that, that was a nice sort of segue onto 
we started off with you as a child early on in the discussion. What, what's your sort of thinking moving forward for young people, children, young at heart? Of where are the jobs for the future, or what? What would you be doing if you were? What would you be suggesting to young people to make sure they, um, I don't know, prepare themselves as much as possible? <laughs> well, that's an easy one for me. Um, I came home two and a half years ago, or three years ago now, uh, to build a new. Uh, organization at the Australian National University because I firmly believed that the world that was coming didn't look like the world that we were in and that we would actually need a new set of skills and a new point of view to handle the world that was coming. And so along with a collection of my colleagues and friends, we've been working to establish a new branch of engineering at the Australian National University that's really sort of tackling the question of how would we take AI sustainably to scale. And for us, that means how do we think about everything from what does it mean to really critically understand the world as a series of interconnected systems? How do we design systems that are respectful of the environment, the ecosystem, humans, and the technological possibilities? How do we train people to be better askers of questions before they get to implementing solutions? Uh, and when I think about what are the jobs of the future, I think a better question is going to be how do you have a blend of skills that let you do a lot of different jobs? Because my sense is we will see the continuation of the last couple of decades, which is that the idea of having the same job for the arc of your lifetime is probably not going to be around as much. And instead what we will have is lots of different jobs. And so being able to move between different kinds of roles in different kinds of organisations and being able to take a set of skills that are transplantable feels like it's really important. And so for us, it's about how do you give people both a point of view that lets you tackle any problem and then a set of skills that are good for tackling most problems mm. <laughs> felt like a, a good investment in education. So, so, that's what so, we've been up to. Just on, so you might have different roles over your life, but almost one role kind of maybe informs the next role to some extent? Is that uh, really Sometimes. I think actually one of the things Australians are particularly perversely famous for is having 180-degree shifts in their careers. Yeah. Uh, they go from doing this thing over here to doing something completely different. And the only way you'd actually work out how those things were related was to have a conversation with them about either what they'd been doing or where they'd been or who they'd met as to why they just decided, hey, I'm going to go do this completely different thing. So I think you should have... I think it's good to have room to get to do that in the arc of your lifetime, like to be able to at some point just say, eh, I'm going to go do this completely different thing. feels like a useful thing to have set yourself up to be able to do. And at that point, I often think the best training for that is not about how do you think about the arc of your career as being neatly strung together, but how do you ensure that every opportunity you have, whether it's work or not, is something that, you've learned something from or something that gives you the next set of questions. Now, that's a me thing too. I'm far less interested in the answers than I am in the next set of questions. Yeah. But do you, I, thinking about your, your life and your career, it's almost like following curiosity or just trying to always unpack. Is there having a, is there something sort of for a, let's say if you talk to uni students, they'll go, what's your passion? What are you trying to follow? And they'll go, I don't know. <laughs> Oh, uh, listen, I, I, I'm not sure the advice of following your passion is good advice. Mm. I tend to think it's a find a problem that you think you can help solve and go solve it. Yeah, and and, and one step, step at a time and, and work towards something, yeah. and that's something yeah. that might move. Yep, it might. <laughs> 
What's the best way to find you, Genevieve? Is there sort of a, a social way, uh, website way? Two easiest, two easiest ways to find me. You can follow me and my institute on Twitter. So on Twitter, my handle is Feral Data. My institute's is 3A Institute. Or you can find us on LinkedIn under the 3A Institute. Or you can follow us on the web and sign up for our newsletter. And you can find us there at the 3Ainstitute.org. Thanks, Genevieve. That was great. Thank you so much. You're very much. welcome. Thanks, Jason.